Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, all over the world. Thanks to the wonders of the internet in Reading, yesterday in broad daylight, in the warm sunshine, a Libyan terrorist knifed to death three people, one of them a history teacher, James Furlong, and we'll be talking about the history of Britain and Libya, ancient and modern, as the backdrop uh, to the discussion on the terrorist attack which murdered three British citizens yesterday in full view of thousands of people and stabbed and critically wounded several others. We'll be talking about the brave police sergeant who brought the knife man down with a rugby tackle. Uh, for US uh, listeners and watchers, rugby is the game that you bodlerized into American football a century or more ago. A rugby tackle from a police sergeant brought the murderous rampage uh, of this Libyan terrorist aged 25 uh, to the ground. You still want to defund the police? Then you better call me because I want to take issue uh, with you. If it were not for uh, that brave police sergeant, uh, this murderer might well have gone on to commit mass murder. Now, he's been living in Reading. He is an asylum seeker. As I said in my introduction, he moved to Reading from Manchester. And of course, there is a tortuous, toxic relationship uh, between the building next door to me, the MI5 headquarters, who are flying their white flag resplendently right now. I've just seen it. MI5 cosseted a cell of Islamist fanatic terrorists in Manchester, one of whom came back to haunt us, to murder and rip to pieces so many of our children at the Manchester Arena three years ago. And now this latest Libyan terrorist turns out to hail from, that's all I can tell you at this point, the very same milieu uh, that the murderers of the Manchester Arena came from. They were cosseted there by the British security services on the immoral principle that my enemy's enemy is my friend. Uh, these Islamist throat-cutting fanatics uh, were the enemies of the Libyan leader Gaddafi. And we, with a brief interregnum in which we tried to get into his tent, and tried to make as much money from him as possible uh, were the enemy of Gaddafi. Ergo, any enemy of Gaddafi was a friend of ours. And we would give them passports. We would give them succor and comfort. We would give them uh, air for their cell to breathe. Unfortunately, right in the heart 
of the great city of Manchester. Uh, but there's another set of issues emerge uh, from the background of this individual captured uh, by the rugby tackle of that brave police sergeant. And it's this. This man, although only 25, had three criminal convictions in Britain as an asylum seeker. He's not British. He doesn't even have asylum in Britain. He's an asylum seeker. He was convicted three times, sent to prison for violent offences, and yet was never deported from this country. This is an intelligence and a police and a justice department and a British government failure of cataclysmic proportions. It is obvious, and 90%, I'm sure, uh, on this poll uh, that I have just posted, will agree that anyone sent to prison whilst here as an asylum seeker should automatically be deported from prison on the hour of their release. Uh, but this man was not. He was given three strikes, uh, but he was never out. And the only people out now are the people he knifed to death yesterday. Now, there's a third layer uh, to this whole story, which is connected, of course, to the first. I never met Gaddafi or any member of his family. Unlike Tony Blair, uh, who was uh, best friends uh, with Gaddafi's son, Tony Blair actually helped write his PhD thesis. I'm not making that up. The Libyan School of, the London School of Economics had a green room. I've been in it. A green room because they received millions of pounds from Gaddafi. I have nothing to do with the Gaddafi regime and wanted nothing to do with the Gaddafi regime. Uh, but I knew that David Cameron and Sarkozy and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were making a gigantic mistake in bombarding Libya as the air force of Al-Qaeda and what has now become ISIS in Libya. Libya has gone from uh, the country with the highest standard of living in Africa uh, to a non-state, not a failed state, uh, but a non-state with several governments, several parliaments, several armies, all still tearing each other apart over the corpse of what was once Libya. Now that would be deadly serious for us in any part of the world. The fact that it's on the Mediterranean, a short sail to the European mainland made the mistake of Sarkozy, Cameron and Barack Obama all the more grotesque because the very people complaining about the flow out of Africa of refugees, asylum seekers, desperate poor people taking to the rubber rafts, many of them to sink under the waves 
in the Mediterranean are the very people who blew the bloody doors off. That's right. They blew the doors to Africa off when they destroyed Libya. The Iraq invasion and occupation is now universally seen as a catastrophe, a catastrophic misjudgment. As some of us pointed out, it would be before they did it. The invasion of Afghanistan, which has now lasted longer than the First World War and the Second World War, and then again the Second World War, is widely regarded as having been all for nothing. All of that blood spilled for nothing. But the invasion, the occupation, the destruction of Libya was like watching a beautiful woman take an open razor across her own face. And no one, no one at all has been held to account for it. Not the politicians who ordered it, not the media that cheerled it, not Sky News that hurtled up and down the highway with Al-Qaeda, cheering them to the rafters, calling them freedom fighters. None of these people have been held to account at all. Discuss. We will in the course of the next three hours or so. And did you hear the one about Donald Trump who claimed uh, that he was going to have to address his rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, twice. He was going to have to address an overflow because a million people, he said, had said that they were coming uh, to the rally in Tulsa. But actually, only 9,000 tops turned up, uh, leaving 20,000 minimum empty seats in the hall and the overflow rally is consigned to history. One of those speeches that was never actually made. Does this spell the end of the hopes of the Trump legions in the United States? So many of them armed, many of them out in Tulsa this evening with their semi-automatic weapons, their bikers jackets and their goatees. What is it about goatees and these fellows? Does it spell the end for them? Well, it would do if the Democrats hadn't picked Joe Biden, who may very well be the only person in the whole of America that could not defeat Donald Trump in November for the presidency. Will Trump go if he's defeated? Will there be armed conflict in the United States? Who would have thunk that I'd be sitting here talking in 2020 about whether a president will agree to leave office if he loses the election. Who'd have thunk in 2020 I'd be questioning whether the United States of America, the so-called leader of the so-called free world, might descend into armed chaos in the wake of a Trump defeat in November. And if Trump is defeated, how long can Biden possibly hold on to power in the White House when he can no longer tie 
his shoelaces. No longer tell his wife from his sister. No longer tell which basement of which house in which part of Delaware he's addressing a tiny number of people. There was at one point I saw he was broadcasting to 69 people this very week. If Trump's crowds are small, Joe Biden's could fit into a telephone box, which for younger viewers and listeners used to be a thing. And of course, the coronavirus has leapt, rocketed in Germany. There's a riot going on right now in Stuttgart in Germany for their particulars forthcoming when they are available. And the rocketing to 2.88 of the R rate surely means that the lockdown will have to be locked down again and damn quick because that level of reproduction of a killer virus is simply unlivable with in normal circumstances. Britain and the United States lockdown, quarantine, social distancing, masks have all collapsed in ignominy. And people have been massing, mobbing and rioting all over both countries in thousands, tens of thousands strong. That spike is yet to come. Yet Britain from tomorrow and moreover from the 4th of July will be pretending that everything is back to normal. Now, there are still some people out there, not so many, or maybe I've just blocked them all, who claim that this was all a capitalist conspiracy, uh, that the coronavirus was no worse than the flu, that this was all a ludicrous hype and exaggeration and part of some dark, nefarious, new world order, Illuminati, plan. Some of those were in Ward 5 in Broadmoor, but others of them ought to have known better. And I once thought when I knew them and cared for them that they did know better. But we are now looking down the barrel of a second spike before the first spike has finished of a coronavirus which may well be no worse than flu, no worse than the Spanish flu, which killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide at the end of the First World War. Now, my good colleague and friend, Caleb Mopan, my favorite American broadcaster, is on the ground in New York City and there to tell us about the latest twists and turns of the Donald Trump affair and the John Bolton book, The Extended Kiss and Tell, National Enquirer within hardback uh, that came out uh, this week and immediately shot to the top of the bestseller list. And of course, I'll be asking, as I always do, where is Joe Biden? Well, even Joe Biden doesn't know the answer to that question, but Caleb Mopan will. He is the legendary speaker, writer, broadcaster, and political analyst, and a man with a great bookshelf too. Caleb, uh, welcome back uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, let's start with the fiasco in Tulsa yesterday. 
Tell us what you thought of that. Well, Donald Trump just didn't seem to have the energy we're used to getting from him. He spoke to an audience. There were a lot of empty chairs in the crowd. Um, and that may have, you know, affected Donald Trump on some level. Uh, we know that when you watch his speech, he spent about 10 minutes talking about how he had dismounted the stage at the West Point uh, commencement ceremony. Um, and he, you know, went into detail about how the, the ramp from the stage was very slippery. He'd been wearing leather shoes. He went into great detail about, about this little incident at, at West Point. Um, now, throughout the speech, he continued to make reference to the protesters outside. And if you had been watching him, you would have thought that, like, the French Revolution was happening out there. Like, they were storming the Bastille, and there was chaos. There was a small crowd of protesters out there. Um, there, was, there was some shouting matches between Trump supporters and the protesters. Uh, but, it, but it wasn't very intense. Uh, we know at one point the police did disperse it with some pepper balls. It wasn't a big crowd, you know, in the hundreds, maybe maybe not even a full hundred. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Trump spoke, uh, is not known as a left-wing stronghold by any means. Uh, but uh, they blame the, the low audience turnout on the protesters. That's the position of the White House, is that the low audience turnout over uh, the, the lack of people in the audience, that was caused by the protesters. However, uh, the New York Times is saying it was a gang of Internet pranksters uh, on TikTok, and they're the ones responsible, that they uh, they had a lot of people reserve seats and not show up. So why exactly the crowd was small uh, remains in question. There's dispute about it, but it wasn't Trump's uh, strongest moment. I think he was hoping to start his campaign with a big, strong rally. Didn't have the energy we usually get. It was a bit of a provocation holding it in Tulsa, wasn't it? Uh, given what happened there in 1921? Indeed, right. I mean, Tulsa, Oklahoma was the site of a horrendous massacre. Uh, they used to call it Black Wall Street. There were a lot of black-owned businesses there. It was kind of a, a business district for African-American businessmen, and the African-American community had kind of set up shop in Tulsa. And then there was a horrendous massacre, all kinds of people killed. Uh, they blamed Bolshevik agitators for the whole thing in the American media. Uh, but regardless, it was a racist massacre. And Trump had originally intended to not have his rally on Saturday, but on Friday, which is June 19th, Juneteenth, which is a holiday that is very important to the African-American community that commemorates the abolition of slavery. So uh, he was forced by public outcry to have the, the rally one day later. Um, but many saw it as a provocative move, uh, something offensive in, in the face of all the widespread protests highlighting police brutality and racism in the United States. Uh, quite a wild day. One of Trump's remarks from the rally has sparked quite a bit of controversy because apparently he said on the stage, if you watch it, you can hear it. He said that, uh, that he had asked for them to slow down COVID-19 testing in the United States because the statistics were hurting the, the administration's image. Now, the White House has said that was a joke. That was simply an offhanded joke. Trump never tried to slow down COVID-19 testing. But many people have observed how slow testing was in the United States and said if that was a joke, it's not funny. And why would he say such a thing to his supporters? So people are, are looking at Trump. And again, not the energy we're used to with the Donald. Uh, this wasn't this wasn't Donald Trump at his full strength. Perhaps he looked out at the crowd and saw those. No, uh, and it it's not been a great week then, uh, Caleb, because uh, the John Bolton kiss and tell 500 pages of kiss and tell that's a lot of kissing, a lot of telling. Uh, went to the New York Times bestseller number one spot even before uh, release. 
what can you tell us about the importance of that book? Well, the courts have stepped in and said that John Bolton uh, violated procedure, right? I mean, there was potentially uh, information in that book that, that could have been a breach of national security um, and that he didn't follow the proper procedure before publishing that book. And the courts may even be taking away some of the money he makes from the book, the $2 million advance and such. But regardless, it appears that the book is arguing that Donald Trump just isn't enough of a warmonger. Uh, that Donald Trump, uh, you know, just wasn't excited about military interventions around the world. And that's what John Bolton is all about. John Bolton was Mr. Invade Iraq. He's Mr. Confront Russia. He's Mr. Uh, overthrow the government of Venezuela. He is a regime change enthusiast. So we now have Donald Trump uh, tweeting out anger at John Bolton and saying that John Bolton loves dropping bombs. And Donald Trump seems to be countering John Bolton with some isolationist uh, rhetoric, saying that John Bolton is just too enthusiastic about foreign entanglements. Um, that seems to be the situation. But now we have the liberals, uh, of course, supporting John Bolton and saying John Bolton's great. One thing people have noticed about the book, though, is it speaks very highly of Mike Pence. John Bolton seems to have blasted many people throughout the Trump administration, but he seems to have singled out Mike Pence, the vice president, for praise, which speculates, uh, many people speculate that, 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 uh, that, that if Trump were to step down and President Pence were to come in, that neocon faction that John Bolton represents might be satisfied. I watched, uh, I think it was a four-parter uh, on Netflix, uh, on Trump uh, this past week. Uh, it is an incredible story. In one sense, it could only happen in America. Uh, this is a failed casino owner, uh, a man who inherited millions uh, from his real estate father and lost uh, most of it, who's probably not remotely as rich as he has led us to believe, and yet he's still hanging in there. And he's still got a fighting chance, doesn't he, of being re-elected in November, if only because the Democrats have chosen Biden. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Biden has certainly raised more money than Donald Trump so far in the campaign, uh, but he's put out these rather dull and boring advertisements that are not really stoking lots of enthusiasm. And it seems like the slogan of the Biden campaign is he's not Trump. And they just seem to be jumping on the, you know, the idea that Biden is not Trump, that Trump is no good, uh, echoing mainstream media critiques of Donald Trump. But Donald Trump's rise really fits into the strange peculiarity of American politics, especially since the Second World War, because Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Trump spoke, you know, 100 years ago, that was a socialist stronghold. Right. Oklahoma, the Okies were known for electing socialists and anarchists and wobblies and radicals to office. During World War One, there was a huge uprising called the Green Corn Rebellion of, of white farmers, Native Americans, African-Americans who joined arm in arm saying they didn't want to fight in World War One. You know, Oklahoma, the heartland of America, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, these used to be strongholds for socialism and radical politics. But politics in the USA have gotten so confused and bizarre, it seems like leftism in the United States has become synonymous with anti-populism, whereas the right wing seems to have harnessed, uh, harnessed the banner of fighting for the people against the elites. So American politics has gotten so bizarre, Donald Trump is just kind of a, an incarnation of how weird things have gotten in the United States, where populism is a bad word in left-wing circles, and it's the far right wing that believe in un unregulated capitalism and lowering the taxes on the rich 
rich and gutting the welfare state. They seem to be the ones that harness uh, fighting for the working man. Extraordinary. Uh, now, uh, the coronavirus number in Germany today, this evening, has been reported uh, as having rocketed uh, to an R number of 2.88. That's from 1.75, which was high enough. Uh, keeping it under one is obviously vital to killing uh, this coronavirus pandemic. If one person is infecting 2.88 others in Germany, uh, where lockdown was eased, uh, what's likely to happen in America and Britain uh, where lockdown long ago collapsed? Well, I'm in New York City, and New York City seems to be the only part of the country where cases are not rapidly rising. We got hammered with it at the beginning, as you'll remember. Um, we've been in lockdown for, for so long, but it seems like we have finally got it under control. But the rest of the country that's been opening up, that's where the rapid rise in cases is taking place. I'm excited because probably tomorrow I'll be able to finally go to the barber shop and get a haircut because I, I need it very badly. Um, and, uh, you know, restaurants might be opening up here very soon. But all over the country, many, many states are seeing a rapid increase in COVID-19. Now, many people are wondering. What will be the result of this rally? Because this rally that Donald Trump had, many people speculated that it was a public health risk. Donald Trump shot back and said no one was saying that about all the protests that are taking place. Uh, but regardless, if Trump's supporters end up getting COVID-19 from the rally, that could hurt him if it looks like he's endangering his supporters. But on the other hand, if you know the Trump supporters come out of the rally unscathed, if there's not you know infections as a result of that rally, that will further the idea that this is all a big conspiracy and a hoax from the Illuminati and the thing up on the thing. Those ideas are pretty widespread among Trump supporters. And that could actually help Donald Trump. And it could be seen as Donald Trump had a bold act by having a rally despite the public health warnings. Caleb Mopin, thanks as always for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Isn't he articulate, young Caleb? He's uh, my colleague at RT uh, America. Should foreign criminals be deported straight from jail? A, yes, 87%, up one. B, no, 13%, down one. You can vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Let's take a couple of calls. Uh, Michael is in Minneapolis, the epicenter. George Floydville. Michael, welcome. Thanks, George. Happy, happy Father's Day to you. And you, thank you so much. Awesome. Well, it's, uh, it's been an interesting week in Minneapolis. Um, we had a very tragic, one of the biggest mass shootings in recent years last night uh, in the very busy uptown neighborhood, which is where a lot of people go out to have a good time on the weekends. There were 11 people shot and one person killed. Wow. Um, they're still uncovering details of how that happened, but it was sort of that was a big tragedy. But I actually wanted to call and talk about a couple of shootings that happened earlier in the week and the continued unrest. And it's sort of an interesting uh, development. So there have been multiple shootings this week where crowds have gathered after the shots. And when the police showed up and tried to start working, the crowd didn't allow them to come in. And there were bystanders administering CPR and, you know, providing medical help, but basically telling the police, you know, get out of here. We don't want you here. We're going to take care of this and make sure that you don't you know, ruin this. And I think that really speaks to the level of, you know, just the total lack of legitimacy uh, the American public feels toward the police right now, that even when there's something as serious as a shooting, uh, you know, in Minneapolis, people are not interested in having the police have anything to do with it.
they want to take care of it and try to help people. And that's sort of, it's nice. It's like a community feeling, but it's also, you know, sort of a loss of legitimacy of the law. And I was wondering kind of your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I'm not one of these who wants to abolish the police uh, or defund the police. So I guess I wouldn't do well in elections in Minneapolis, uh, where uh, some kind of no-go area, a uh, free zone, has been uh, apparently uh, established. Uh, tell us about that, Michael. Yeah, so it's sort of, I think it's sort of along the lines of the autonomous zone in uh, Seattle, and just the idea that there's an area where people can protest and sort of police themselves. And that's been, uh, that's been sort of a, that's been a frequent theme in protests in recent weeks. Uh, in fact, some of the protests I've attended, they'll even, you know, they'll have people that they've set up in advance, sometimes even armed people, who they'll point out to us, they're all wearing the, the same Black Lives Matter shirt, and they, they make it clear. They say, hey, look, if anybody gets out of line, we're going to kick you out of here. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to stand for that. We're not going to allow. So there's a, it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a development of the protest movement. Um, you know, looking at the looters and some of the actors who have taken advantage of this to, you know, burn businesses to the ground. You know, often of totally innocent business owners and sort of fight back against that and sort of police themselves. And I think that I think that kind of goes along the lines of what I'm saying. There's been a really there's been this move to try to try to handle things on our own terms without getting the police involved and i you know george it, it's a i understand your position i think that you know when people talk about defunding the police in the united states what they're talking about is you know when someone's having a mental health breakdown we should be calling a social worker not the police you know when things like that happen so i i think you know or if someone's in distress but it's not you know there's no direct physical endangerment to anyone other than someone is a danger to themselves um they kind of want to move in that direction and so i understand your position but your police officers can also be trusted to not just shoot people on a whim well they couldn't uh, maybe thank god they don't have weapons uh our uh, police are not uh, armed uh, and so couldn't uh, and we have good police and bad police as i'm sure you do in the united states though maybe our ratio is a little bit better uh, than yours uh, how will all this impact uh, on the elections in Minnesota uh, come November? Uh, is, uh, the, there's uh, some quite famous uh, Democratic uh, politicians uh, in your area. Are they going to uh, see their popularity boosted or damaged, do you think? I mean, I think you've already seen a lot of their popularity damage, but I will say of the largest people in the state, you know, the governor was just elected in 2018. Uh, Tina Smith was just elected as, as the Senate in 2018. Amy Klobuchar was just reelected in 2018. So none of these people are up for reelection until 2022 or 2024. I think what you're going to see next year in the mayoral election, I think you're going to see Jacob Fry get absolutely crushed, and rightfully so, because it's just been He's been, his entire tenure has just been a joke. I mean, the not, and not just starting with this. I mean, he's been, you know, there's a huge housing shortage in Minneapolis. He hasn't done anything to help people, a rising homeless population, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I will say the issues we have in the police here, I think, go back to your point talking about Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. Because what happened is, you know, they got all this homeland security funding, all these police forces. Not only did they take all this excess military gear that they now use domestically as if, you know, as you've said, we're occupied in our own country, 
But a lot of the people training the police now in the United States are military people. So you've got these, you've got these military, uh, you know, ex-military vets going around from, pol- from, uh, from city to city across the United States and training police officers to look at us as the enemy. And I know people have been through this police training, and they will show them, you know, hours of videos of cops being killed by uh, being, you know, being attacked or, like, in the worst view possible. They, they go out of their way to make them scared of everyone and make them think that every interaction could be their last. So it's a really the way the training is the really the biggest issue. You know, as always with all things, the issue is systemic. But I really think that the issue we're seeing with the police and the escalation of it and the just the killings that have increased over and over in recent years, you can tie a lot of that back to our occupation in the Middle East and the fact that we fully militarized the police in the United States. Thank you uh, very much, as always, Michael in Minneapolis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, uh, hands up if you know anything at all uh, about what happened to the U.S. Liberty, the United States naval vessel Liberty which was attacked by its ally, Israel, in 1967, with much loss of life and significant loss of blood. Uh, This would seem to be uh, a story of some importance. Was it a mistake in the fog of war? Was it a deliberate uh, provocation? Why was it covered up? Why has no justice been achieved for the uh, United States Navy sailors uh, on board uh, the Liberty? Why is this a matter that is never even discussed? Well, we are lucky enough to have with us, I hope in good sound and vision, Ernie Gallo, who is an ex-president of the USS Liberty Veterans Association uh, and who was on the Liberty uh, at the time. Ernie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you explain to what I think will be an overwhelmingly unknowing audience, certainly on this side of the Atlantic, maybe yours also, what happened on that day? The... Um, after being surveilled all morning by the Israeli, um, by Israeli aircraft, at two o'clock in the afternoon, they returned and immediately attacked the ship with jets 
and then finally torpedo boats. And um, um, a helicopter came out with armed troops following that, but they, they eventually turned around and left. The Israelis were definitely trying to sink the ship because they used a torpedo and, um, and take out anybody who was still left alive. Admittedly, in 1967, Israel was not the super ally of the United States, which it subsequently became. Uh, in 1956, for example, in the Suez Crisis, uh, the United States had uh, strongly uh, condemned uh, the Anglo-French-Israeli conspiracy against Egypt, and that was only there for a decade or so before. Uh, since then, of course, Israel has become uh, super-glued uh, to the United States. But even in 1967, this must have come as something of a shock to you. Oh, absolutely. Yes, you're right. The, the, both the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations had an arms embargo and a balanced Middle East policy, and LBJ turned that all around to put us on the track that we are on now today. So, I mean, it must have been a case of not being able to believe your eyes when they opened fire on you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I had no idea that the Israelis were the ones who were attacking us until later on, uh, after the attack was over. Um, uh, the planes that, that initially uh, shot up the ship were, were not marked. It was only until the torpedo boat showed up that the, the folks that were topside were able to see the Israeli flags. But yeah, it was a real shock. I, I, I couldn't believe it either, yes. And how many people died on your ship, and how many were wounded? 34 were killed and 174 wounded. Two-thirds of the crew was incap incapacitated. I mean, that is a very high casualty number. Well, we were, we were target practice. Uh, we had no way of, uh, uh, we had 450, 450 caliber machine guns for repel borders. No way could we protect ourselves or shoot back um, and do any uh, meaningful damage to uh, the aircraft and torpedo boats. Um, and I might, might mention, you know, on, uh, the, the North Koreans, when they attacked the Pueblo, at least they, they communicated with them first to try to get them to surrender, which they did. The Israelis did not make any attempt to communicate with us. They just simply attacked uh, from the get-go. Is there any possibility that this was mistaken identity, uh, that your ship was taken as, mistakenly uh, taken as, an enemy uh, ship? That morning, uh, when we arrived on site, there were, we counted 12 overflights of reconnaissance, Israeli reconnaissance aircraft. They took pictures of us. They knew who we were. We were flying the American ensign, and our ship is our ship looked like the um, uh, very different kind of of um, military ship. Um, we were, first of all, we were not a man of war, uh, and we had something like 40 some antennas from stem to stern. Um, uh, a very modern looking uh, vehicle. Uh, what I'm trying to say is. They later said that they thought we were the 
uh, Egyptian ship El Khazar, and that's that's foolish. It's, the Liberty was twice the size, and had had, um, and it was, and we were well marked. Uh, the across the stern with very large letters USS Liberty, and our flag was flying 99% of the time. During the attack, the attack, the, one a, a smaller flag was shot down. Our, our captain ordered our ho ho holiday colors to, to be put up, which is a very large flag. So um, there was no They knew who we, who we were. As a matter of fact, as we were trying to give uh, send the May Day to the Sixth Fleet, um, our our circuits were were jammed. Now those frequencies, those six frequencies, um, that's very important because. Uh, they knew the frequencies we were going to use uh, to communicate with the Sixth Fleet, and they were jamming them. Uh, but we did manage to finally get through. Why on earth would they have done this? Uh, what's your theory on it, Ernie? You've been fighting for a long time on this now. What's your current theory? Well, um, there's two authors have written books. Um, <clears throat> Phil Nelson wrote... Uh, Remember the Liberty, and Joan Mellon wrote uh, Blood in the Water. Independently, they came to the same conclusion. From their research, LBJ colluded with the Israelis to sink the ship in order to bring the United States into the war. Remember, this was during the Cold War, and the Soviets were about to get into it because Syria and Egypt were their client states. So they were losing. They were losing very badly, and uh, they let us know that they were about to send uh, paratroopers in uh, at any moment if uh, Israel made any attempt to go towards Damascus or Cairo. So yeah. Um, uh, so a provocation. Uh, I mean, this this is much worse, bloodier than the uh, than the Tonkin incident, which. Uh, uh, took the Vietnam War, American War, on Vietnam to a new level, uh, because this one uh, involved uh, the deliberate slaughter uh, of American military personnel. Absolutely. One of the things that happened uh, when we got our May Day off to the Sixth Fleet, um, the USS Saratoga immediately launched planes to come to our aid and advised the USS America to launch planes also which they did. And Admiral Geis, who's in charge of the, of the air ops, contacted Washington and told them what was happening. Now, at that time, we didn't know who was attacking us, so it could have been the Soviets. The uh, Secretary of uh, 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 Defense, uh, McNamara, got on the line and told them to return the planes to the decks of the ships. Admiral Geis was, couldn't believe what he was hearing. He followed the, those orders, but the more he thought about it, and it's also it's a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, he uh, decided to launch planes again, made sure that the planes were conventionally armed, and they did. And he sent word back to Washington, again telling them what he was doing. And McNamara got on the line again and said, return those planes to the ships. And he, uh, Geist challenged the order because it was a bad order. But this time Johnson got on the line and said, return those planes 
to the deck. He says, I, I don't care if these sailors die. I will not have my ally embarrassed. Now, as I said, we never—we didn't know who was attacking us, but they did. That's very—I think that's very damning evidence. Now, uh, the cover-up, how, how big a cover-up has it been? I mean, I'm guessing the vast majority of my audience this evening uh, has never heard this story before. Uh, how big has this cover-up been? Yeah, we were, we were told that we could never talk about the incident uh, to our wives, to our, our mothers and fathers. Uh, we couldn't talk to anyone about, about what happened, uh, the threat of being arrested, fined, jailed, or worse. Um, they, uh, they sent officers out to the Mediterranean to all the communication centers to, to make sure that anybody that had heard anything or anything that was was uh, written was confiscated and uh, they made sure that it was destroyed. The most important thing, though, is that the Navy Court of Inquiry that followed was, uh, was a sham. It was orchestrated from the White House that, that the, the testimony under oath given by, uh, by the USS, USS Liberty crew uh, was was um, changed or dropped or anything uh, that made Israel look like the, the aggressor. In other words, the, the White House had told the, the uh, uh, Admiral Kidd, who was the uh, president of the of the, of the uh, Navy report, that the, the Israelis that the attack was going to be accidental. And um, one of our officers. Um, saw Israelis machine-gunning our life rafts, the only, the only life rafts that were left, machining them in the water. That's against the Geneva Convention. And uh, it's, a, it's a war crime. And uh, the, the, the Navy Court of Inquiry then becomes the official document. Later on, we filed a, a war crimes report with the Pentagon. And uh, uh, thinking that this is our chance to have an investigation, uh, the Pentagon came back and said, uh, we don't need to investigate. The Navy Court of Inquiry did that. End of story. So yes, they, uh, the cover-up, uh, and even continued in 2000 and 2004, where the State Department had a conference, so-called conference, where they were going to discuss the Six-Day War. Only the real, the real mission of this, of that conference, was to talk about the attack on the USS Liberty. From the folks that were invited, uh, it was it was evident that they were trying to uh, polish this thing off to make sure that that the history would would indicate that the attack was accidental. But unfortunately, the month before, the the legal counsel for the, the Navy Court of Inquiry report, Captain Ward Boston, had came out of the closet and gave us a sworn affidavit that Admiral Kidd and him both know that the attack was deliberate and had and saw the evidence. So yeah, the, the cover-up has been extensive. Now, uh, were the families of the uh, of the fallen uh, ever compensated? Is there still any uh, effort being made for justice in this case? 
No, uh, the, I don't know of any of my shipmates that have ever received um, any compensation from Israel. Uh, I received a check for a little over $200 at the time, but uh, it hardly covered replacing my uniforms and things that I lost on the attack. And is, is that an ongoing, what are you demanding now, Ernie, as an association? Well, we, we want the truth told to the American public. Now, um, to do that, possibly, would be a congressional investigation. Now, uh, in, our, in our Constitution, uh, there is a clause that the House has to investigate any naval ship that's attacked in, in peacetime. Uh, and, and this goes back to the, to the piracy days. Anyway, they've done so, except for one, the USS Liberty. Now, our distractors are going to tell you that, oh, there's been 11 or 12 investigations. Well, those investigations would appear on a, a congressional list. And that, there is none. There is none. And besides which, how could you have an investigation about the attack if you, the crew is not uh, subpoenaed to give testimony under oath. That's never happened. Fascinating story. Ernie Gallo, thank you very much indeed. Uh, the ex-president of the USS Liberty Veterans Association. And the calls are coming in already uh, on that subject. Let's go to the first of them, Jim in Fort Collins. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, George. Hi there. Hi, go Mr. ahead. Gallo. Yes. Uh, about 20 years ago, I read a book by a captain, I guess his name was Jim Ennis. He, yeah. he was the captain of the U.S. Liberty. Yeah. I understand. Were your, were your communications jammed as the attack Ernie's started? And he's gone, uh, gone, Jim, so oh, uh, you're just talking with me, yeah. Oh, I understand. Uh, I read in the book that. He said um, that. He said the, the communications. communications. He said their communications right. were deliberately jammed. Uh, and the... It, uh, frequencies were known uh, to the people, uh, yeah, to the attackers. Right. That's the only way it could happen. An ally, would have, somebody would have to give the codes away or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Also, George, um, what happened when they were rescued the next day, the captain gave uh, a list of the men who were killed and wounded in action, okay? And within minutes, he got a, he got a reply, a terse reply that says, what are you talking about, action? Action. It was an accident. Now, given that it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning in Washington and it was probably some junior officer who was taking these calls, it, it, how did, he was told already to say it was an accident? Yeah. You know, it was, it was it really weird. It is uh, and, weird. And, uh, and the scale of the death toll and the wounded is absolutely right. uh, phenomenal. Some accident. Yeah. Some accident, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> and they, when they put the two torpedoes into them, yeah. okay, right and, after and that, they, they flew, said, and you they need flew any tops. help? Yeah. They <laughs> yeah. turned back with the, with the airborne, but they attacked uh, with, uh, with troops, torpedoes, yeah. and aircraft. Yeah. And then they asked if you need help after the two torpedoes went into the starboard yeah. side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and after and machine gunning ridiculous. the life rafts. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, when I was, uh, uh, got on with the screener, I said, hey, I read the book and they attacked the life rafts and that, that's a war crime. Yeah. And uh, he, he finally got to it before I got on. Yeah. Jim, so. thanks for the call. Uh, uh, and let me stay in the United States on that subject. In Idaho Falls, we've got Eve. 
Yves, welcome. Hello, George. Uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, interview. Thank you. Uh, each time, you know, I hear about uh, this story, it, it, makes, uh, it makes me cry, really. I mean, it's, it, it's really terrible. Now, the, the reason why I was calling you is, is to the people who have never heard about it. You know, unlike Kennedy assassination or September 11th, where you have a million stories out there, for the USS Liberty, you have only two. You have the story of the whole crew of the ship. And those people were not idiots. They were specialists of communication. And you have the story of the Johnson administration, McNamara, and uh, maybe also uh, uh, McCain, you know, uh, the, the, the father. Uh, you know, people on that side, and you have the story. You have only two stories. Which one do you believe? Yeah. You know, that's the first question. When I talk to people, I say, which one do you believe? After the track record of the U.S. administration, which one do you believe? And then you go from there. Exactly so. Thank you, Eve, uh, for that. Which one do you believe? Let us know uh, on the phone or on the Twitter, at George Galloway. Now, as I said earlier in the show... Uh, there's a dramatic development on the coronavirus in Germany, uh, where the uh, R rate, the rate of reproduction, uh, the rate of transmission, uh, has risen uh, dramatically over a four-day period and is now 2.88, meaning that uh, for every person who's got it, they will pass it on to almost three other people. You don't have to be... Uh, Alan Turing, uh, to uh, work out the mathematics uh, of that. It is a truly horrifying new development. And uh, I'm hoping that our own Moats medic, uh, the redoubtable Ranjit Bra, doctor, uh, physician, surgeon, who's helped us through this whole issue throughout the entire period, is joining me now. Dr. Ranjit, uh, thank you again for joining us. Now, uh, about the German R number, it is a horrifying uh, development. It's gone up from uh, 1.75 uh, to 2.88 in four days. That's alarming and no reason to believe it only uh, operates like that in Germany, is there? Uh, I think that's right, George. Thanks again for having having me back with you. Um, we have said from the beginning that what you know the facts that we have established about coronavirus are, are well known and have been known throughout um, the course of the pandemic from, from January, really. Um, so we know this is an exceptionally infective agent, much more infective than the common flu and much more deadly than the common flu in terms of its propensity to develop this severe viral pneumonia. That's why we are you know, treating it so very differently from, from the flu. Uh, and of course, the R number, the reproductive number, has been widely uh, uh, different uh, according to social circumstances, which is why it spreads more rapidly in some places than others. But left to the normal conditions of the world, there were several studies that looked at it, and it was found to be between uh, two and a half and as high as six uh, uh, in initial studies of, of outbreaks. Uh, and so that's why this massive raft of measures to um, suppress its spread, to check social distancing measures, essentially, um, as well as uh, all, this, all of the 
many um, attempts we've seen to have varying degrees of lockdown in different countries throughout the world are precisely to su suppress the, uh, the, the spread of this virus. India initially reported very low numbers and recently seems to you know, have lifted its lockdown and found a huge increase in surge in cases and has had to go back into a second lockdown. Germany, of course, we thought did very well initially, both because it had a large number of ventilator beds, probably as many as 40 or 50,000 compared to us in the UK, who normally only have 4,000 and were able to increase towards the 8,000 number. Um, we thought that they'd done well. They had a very early on a very good regime of testing and therefore had much better sight of the virus. But this particular um, uh, increase in the R number came, seems to have come from a number of small outbreaks. One in particular, there was a there was a German meatpacking factory where there were over a thousand new cases that were found to have spread from that factory alone. So when people work in you know, close conditions, uh, close to each other, one person having the virus can spread it onto many, many more. And there can be a rapid change with the lifting of lockdown measures and a lower state of vigilance, if you like, as we start to move uh, back towards normal life, which everyone is keen to do, we do leave ourselves exposed precisely to this, and partly because we know already the virus actually has affected a very low percentage of the population, much less than 10 in Germany, probably still around 7% of the population in Britain only. Well, we all want to get back to normal life, but we don't want death. Uh, and uh, even on a quiet day, uh, well over 100 people are dying in Britain. Uh, in, in fact, uh, I think 123 or so uh, today. It's always quieter at weekends, uh, slower reporting. Uh, it's likely that on Monday and Tuesday uh, that will be uh, higher than that. And we have effectively no lockdown now, do we? Uh, right from the beginning, uh, the uh, shops were open, uh, uh, the food shops were open, supermarkets were open, uh, Marks and Spencer uh, was open. Uh, you could go in and buy food, but you could also buy shoes. Uh, I know that because I did. Uh, so uh, that's been followed uh, by, uh, by building workers back right from, more or less, from the beginning. I think they were never followed. Uh, and now uh, the follow is coming to an end. Uh, and there's a huge agitation, uh, God knows why, but to get people back into pubs and scrapping even the ineffectual two-meter uh, rule. It seems to me obvious, uh, I'm not uh, as learned as you, uh, that it, the closer you get to a greater number of people, the more risk there is of you giving it to them or them giving it to you. I think that's exactly right. Um, going back to your first point, several good points there. Going back to your first point in terms of the actual numbers of cases, you know, there, if this is the end of the first wave, it's got a very long tail. I was looking at the numbers of cases, the daily cases precisely, trying to look at this because it's hard to correlate day after day. And if we go back three weeks ago, over the whole of the week, there were just over 2,000 cases. Uh, two weeks ago, 1,200 cases. This week, uh, you know, or just shy of 1,000 cases. Um, and so really, whether we've dipped and the cases are rising again, certainly they're more this Sunday than last Sunday, um, though we know those figures get updated. You know, there, there's every sign that those numbers are starting to drift up again rather than continue on their downward trajectory. 
but there's less emphasis on that in, in our news, in our news reporting. There's more and more emphasis on how to get business functioning, how to open airlines, on bridges between countries, air bridges so-called, i.e. allowing travel between countries. Um, British people are to be let back into Spain and other places, and people are happy to go to their second homes or to go to their favorite holiday destinations, no doubt. But all of this affords far greater scope uh, for the virus to spread freely, uh, the reopening of schools. Uh, and, and still, you know, our NHS is really at a, at a straining point. It's trying to open normal services, but we know that there are 10 million or more cases of people waiting for appointments, waiting for procedures. Uh, the BMA has done a survey this, this week and showing that a high percentage, more than 40% of its staff feel um, unable to cope, feel stressed, feel uh, you know, uh, that they have they're exhausted, essentially, by the last few weeks uh, of, of um, the course of this pandemic and the effect it's had on them and their professional working and themselves personally not knowing whether they're safe and their family are safe. So our ability to um, cope with a second major wave is certainly open to question. Now, the uh, truthfulness of the government has frequently been called into question. Uh, and I saw an article this week uh, which said that for 22 solid days, 22 consecutive days, our actual death rate was over 1,000. And the government deliberately uh, manipulated those figures uh, so that on no single day were 1,000 deaths reported because they saw that it would be totemic, symbolic, uh, alarming. Uh, so uh, high numbers of 960, 970, 980 were recorded. But the true, the true figure for 22 solid days in a row uh, was over 1,000. That's a lot of deaths, Doctor. It certainly is. And I think, you know, it comes back to that initial question of how do we know the true extent of the mortality from this condition? And I think excess mortality is a good way of looking at it. Of course, that will reflect slightly the fact that the NHS really was overwhelmed and we shut down normal activity, but is very likely looking at those excess mortality figures that actually more than 65,000 people have so far succumbed to this problem. And as we say, if 7% of the population only have been uh, exposed to it. Now, it may well be that some of the most vulnerable uh, of our population have sadly been taken and that we don't see such a huge wave, but there's certainly no guarantee of that. As we know, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s are all susceptible um, to the ill effects of, of coronavirus. And it, it still is very possible and it still is a great concern that we're going to be seeing a second wave of infection. Dr. Ranjit Bra, thank you, as always, for helping us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, who would you erect a statue to now? A, Jeremy Corbyn, 27%. B, Julian Assange, 61%. C, Barack Obama, 12%. Who are that 12%? Or you can suggest your own idea on my Twitter feed. Vote now. George Galloway on Twitter, at George Galloway. Uh, 463 votes in so far, you've got about uh, 45 minutes uh, to erect your statue. Uh, in response to the poll, um, Tom says Adolf Hitler, not for the Holocaust, of course, for his works with children. Uh, this is a spoof, of course, on the, uh, the slaver statues uh, that uh, have been uh, in the news. Uh, the, the statue was not because they were a slaver. 
It was because they gave a lot to charity from the blood money that they made at the slaving. And Lazy Coconut say, says, I'd rather see a statue of your good self for all of your great efforts throughout the years. Thank you very much, but no thanks. I've always respected the pigeon. It knows where to um, defecate. Alex says, Sir Winston Churchill, every street should have one. And Adam says, nobody political. Uh, this poll is like, would you like to be left hooked, right hooked or uppercutted? How about David Beckham? I think James Corden knows a good statue maker. And Tom says, Mother Teresa or Che Guevara. Wesley says, Assange, Corbyn and Obama are both UN stooges. That's a new allegation. Uh, and Daz says, great show again, George. It's no coincidence that many of these terrorist individuals have spent time in our prison system. Lots of impressionable people to be radicalized. What happened to Colombo this week? Well, as I say, you can't actually, it's boiling in here. You cannot present a show uh, in a, a, a fawn-colored raincoat. But just one more thing. Uh, on Facebook, Gunther says, how is Trump racist? Oh, dear. Please give specific incidents. How long have you got, Gunther? Uh, and Aaron says, in America, white man can safely, white man, can safely put his hand in the glove compartment to get his details. A black man has the fear of getting shot always. The black man is twice as likely to be shot than the white. That's the reality. Indeed, that's the case. Understated, in fact. It's four times as likely. Gilbert is in Los Angeles. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Gilbert. Hello, how are you doing, George? Good, Good nice to, to hear from you. you. Excellent. I, 99% uh, of the time, I agree with you. Today, though, there was a point that kind of irked me enough to have me call. And okay. it, was, you know, your, it was your comparison of leadership, global leadership, be, you know, being basically clutches. I, I believe the term you used were more of Austin Powers than James Bond. Yeah. So, and I think that oversimplifies geopolitics too much because at the end of the day, uh, whatever government or organization which is being targeted by a nation state, um, th there's too many factors to just simplify it. For example, Britain and America and Israel are targeting Venezuela right now. The thing is the Venezuelan people are very organized and they're very committed to their revolution. Now, you have an example where you have a supposed leftist government in Bolivia, which was easily toppled. And once again, uh, you know, to compare the CIA or, you know, MI6 to Austin Powers, when in reality, if we look at the history of, you know, whether their relations to narco-traffickers or coup d'etats from, you know, Arbenz in Guatemala, you know, assassinations of Trujillo, you know, coups in, in Brazil, uh, you know, what they did to the Sandinistas, the, the Iran-Contra drug trafficking. I think it, it does a disservice to your audience to do that. So that's basically my point. I think for the most part we agree, but I think, you know, Austin all Powers, you, all, yeah. All, they, Gilbert, all you've established is the venality uh, of uh, the deep state in your country and mine, and I'm hardly a person who's going to dispute that. Uh, the question is the efficacy, and their efficacy is much closer 
uh, to Austin Powers than to James Bond. There are a lot of people out there that think themselves on the left who imagine uh, that in the building next door to me and in the building across the river from me uh, are finely tuned Rolls-Royce James Bond machines. Uh, but they're not. And most of the time, they are stumbling from one cock-up, one blunder, one catastrophe to the next one. That's all I'm trying to say. And I, I agree for the most part. I think the one other point that must be made in that argument you just made, though, is that a lot of times the blunders are the ones that we find out about. All their successes we find out, you know, 20, 30 years later when, you know, documents are declassified. Because there's way more well, successes, no, George, most of it is than... In, yeah, but most of it's in plain sight now. Uh, I mean, what but, uh, Mr. Bean... Uh, can you describe the Bay of Piglets uh, the other week in uh, Venezuela uh, when a group of mercenaries, uh, some of them serving U.S. military personnel, arrive uh, on the beach uh, in Venezuela and are captured by fisherwomen? Uh, well, once again, though, hold on, hold on, though, George. That is, once again, thanks to the legacy of the great leader, Hugo Chavez, who reorganized the civic-military relation in that country, where you're right, it was a Bay of Piglets, where you got, you know, Jordan Goudreau, this mercenary, basically, you know, you know, offering his services for $200 million to Guaido with a, you know, $50 million event. It's ludicrous. But then we have a case in Bolivia where those U.S. trained military leaders in the country basically staged a coup they did. and but were for, able to they successfully did. They take did, out uh, they did, uh, Gilbert, But for every uh, successful uh, operation like Bolivia, uh, there's a Libya, there's an Iraq, uh, there's uh, an Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq was a success, George. No, no, Libya no, no. was a success. No, no. Where is all that gold? Where is Gaddafi's gold? Well, a lot of thieves got Let's rich. Let's be honest. Where is Saddam well, Hussein's gold? Well, a lot of thieves got rich, but that doesn't make it a success. Nobody okay, in, the, any, nobody in well, the whole world now uh, can look at George. the disaster in Iraq and say that it, wasn't, uh, that it was James Bond that done it. Just because some thieves uh, got rich... It doesn't make it a success. It's a catastrophic failure, as is Libya. But, George, a success for who? Of course, it's not a success for, for the Iraqis. It's not a success for the world. It's not a American taxpayer no, who has to pay trillions no. of dollars for the war. It was but a, it's a, it was a success, success, success only a success for, for the, the capitalists. No, no, no. Yeah, for the people no, no, that no, run. No, look, how many Libya, contracts How many people are making money in Libya today? George, Iyad Alawi, who was the prime minister of Iraq, was a former CIA asset. Well, uh, so course, once again, we have and to got, ask the success for who. And, he, and he, got, uh, he got a very, very small uh, percentage when the elections came. You're missing, when, when, you're missing my point. I've asked, you, I've asked you, how many people are making money in Libya today? The weapons manufacturers. Uh, all, 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 how much black money, how much black money, which is a black budget, is being right now 
generated. First off, we have a lot. First off, the U.S. thought they were going to be able to control Haftar, and Haftar is now basically going to take over. Well, but the Libyan, so, uh, yeah, you're the, right. The Libyan economy has gone through the floor. Uh, there is no possibility of any Western businessman going to Libya. Uh, they would be kidnapped uh, within the first five hours uh, of their arrival in their hotel. Trade has collapsed. Uh, the idea that they had, that they clearly were working on a plan to invade and topple Gaddafi and then harvest uh, Libya's natural resources is, n is now laughable, uh, absolutely laughable. Uh, Libya does not produce any oil. It cannot export any oil. There's three governments, uh, four parliaments, and three armies, at least three armies, and, and 50 militia. It is a complete basket case. And therefore, the people who thought it was a good idea are better described as Austin Powers uh, than James Bond. Thanks. Been a pleasure disagreeing with you. Let me go to Rashid in Long Beach because I'd love to be there in Long Beach right now. Go ahead, Rashid. Sunny as always, George. Uh, Sunny course, as always. Of course. George, I just wanted to follow up on what Mr. Gallo had said, and I want to emphasize 53 years of complicity between the United States government and the Israeli government. That The day of the attack of the, uh, the Liberty, the Israeli jets flew over it, reconnaissance the planes, uh, the ship, identified it as an American ship, flew back, and yet they still engaged in an attack. There were IAF communications where the pilots radioed back to headquarters that it's an American ship, and they were told, record it, go ahead, attack it, it's an order. So they bombed 850 missile shots and uh, gunfire. They came back with motor torpedo boats, dropped two torpedoes into the ship, and then they came back with Marines on attack helicopters. But if you have a chance to talk to the other survivors, they'll tell you they were going to fight to the last man. And I think the Israelis understood that. And the other news is that once the word got out and the intelligence platform around the world knew what was going on, they pulled away. They couldn't sink that ship because it had survived the, uh, traveling across the Atlantic as a double-hulled ship at the end of World War II. It was ready for uh, U-boats, not just Israeli motor torpedo boats. But I want to emphasize that the USS Liberty was the most advanced sensing platform in the world at the time as a naval ship. It could listen to anything, and it was completely wired in to know that the Israelis instigated the Six-Day War, that they preemptively attacked Jordan, they preemptively attacked Egypt, and they preemptively attacked Syria, that they were listening and they heard the massacre of the Egyptian prisoners of war in the Sinai. All of that was captured by the Liberty, and all of that had to be erased. And more importantly, as you've mentioned, the supergluing of the United States to Israel, there's been a current within multiple American administrations, within the Congress, they're all part of this, and that's to get America engaged ultimately in the wars in the Middle East, which they finally successfully have done. And it didn't matter who would get killed along the way, that was the ultimate goal. Yeah, and I mean, uh, as a false flag, uh, it's a particularly bloody one, isn't it? Uh, it's one thing uh, uh, constructing a, a fake narrative like the Tonkin uh, affair, uh, but to actually facilitate the slaughter of a significant number of your own uh, service personnel 
and then cover it up. Uh, as crimes go, uh, that's a particularly heinous one. Well, let me give you more to the crime. The fact that what's it called, that super gluing of the nations together by 1992 had been so strong that the uh, Clinton administration, the U.S. federal government, started subsidizing American police forces to travel to Israel and learn from the IDF on how to take care of troublemakers, i.e. the Palestinians. And those techniques for the last 20 years have surfaced across military uh, police stations around the United States where uh, sergeants, captains, regular guys are flown at taxpayer expense, U.S. federal taxpayer expense, state taxpayer expense, local city taxpayer expense to Israel for training where they learn how to put their knees on the necks of troublemakers such as Mr. Floyd. So what we're seeing in America is the Israelification of our police departments. And that's 53 years of complicity known by multiple presidents, known by congressmen, known by the judiciary, and completely accepted even by our major media. Very powerful, Rashid. Thank you very much for that excellent call. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Uh, Joshua in London uh, on, I think, the same subject. Go ahead, Joshua. Yeah, uh, George. Um, okay, this is this is probably the frankest call you're ever going to get from me, and it's it's intended to sort of, if you like, call a spade a spade. You see, um, but it, it is not intended in any way to be uh, defamatory. But do you think maybe instead of instead of uh, you know, Jewish uh, survivors from the Holocaust being given a homeland in Israel. Do you think that Germany, being the well, Nazi Germany, being the perpetrator of the Holocaust, do you think since it gave up relinquished territory or was forced to relinquish territory to the Soviet Union and Poland, both countries of which it partially exterminated their population, do you think it should have also been expected to give um, a bit of its land for a Jewish sanctuary, or do you think that would have been wrong? Well, uh, I think that the uh, survivors of the Holocaust, uh, the last place in the whole world they would have uh, entrusted their family and their security to would be uh, in Germany. Uh, I do think it is extraordinary uh, that Germany has uh, gotten away, uh, as indeed has Japan, uh, with, the, yeah, with the wartime atrocities and have uh, become uh, lionized and patronized in all kinds of ways, both Germany and uh, Japan, uh, whilst, uh, whilst Russia, which uh, bore the brunt of the Nazi uh, onslaught and was the most decisive factor in its defeat, is now our enemy. Uh, I think that is uh, one of the great perversities uh, of history. Uh, of recent history, in the history of people that are still alive and listening, uh, watching this show tonight. 
so I don't think directly your point uh, I would agree with, uh, but the inference I draw from your point uh, is that uh, the Palestinians paid the price for European anti-Semitism and mm -hmm. pogrom and genocide. And that seems to be so unjust as to be such a standout uh, that I'm, I have been in no doubt all my life where I stand on it. Yeah, well, um, and my, my sort of, the inference, I'm sure, the additional inference you can gather from that is, well, I know this sounds maybe a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit hateful, but let's be honest, George, you'd rather, man to man, you'd rather it the Germ, uh, German plans be given up for the Jews for Jewish people or Jewish uh, refugees than the poor Palestinians. Well, uh, uh, yeah, well actually, uh, most of the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust wanted mm. to go to the United States and or Britain uh, and mm. or France. Uh, but these uh, great supporters of Israel slammed their doors uh, on these uh, poor, uh, wretched, uh, survivors of an attempted genocide. Uh, and that is an extraordinary truth, uh, that most of them, as far as we can tell, and there's a lot of studies uh, on this, did not want to go to Palestine. Uh, but the doors of everywhere else were closed to them. Uh, and uh, therefore, it was Palestine or, or nothing. Uh, thanks, uh, Joshua. Uh, slightly uh, off topic, but interestingly, Georgie says, Lord Sugar has stated that he doesn't know anyone that has died from COVID-19, thereby downplaying its propensity for harm and demonstrating how out of touch he is. Of course, he just wants to accumulate more wealth at any cost. Uh, now, Chris Plumley, uh, a man I uh, have interviewed before, know well, uh, has written a, a good deal on the USS Liberty, Let's hear his perspective on it. Chris, welcome. Hello, George. Good evening to you. Good evening. Now, what do you think of what we've heard so far on the show tonight about the USS Liberty? Any holes in the arguments? Well, to be honest, George, I haven't been listening, mate. I'm awfully sorry to have to say that, but I've just been mauled to all calls, and, and I've literally just got through your producer to say, come okay. on. So then, well, I'm sorry, mate. Let me, really no, it's all right. Let me, yeah. let me recap. Uh, yeah. The former president of the USS Liberty Veterans Association uh, talked us through in a very dignified and powerful way uh, the events of that day. And he is in no doubt at all uh, that the attack on the USS Liberty uh, was a joint uh, Israeli uh, Johnson White House uh, operation, uh, that the, yeah. there was a deliberate attack on the ship, no question of mistaken identity, uh, and a clear war aim, uh, the aim being to directly draw the United States into the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. Over to you. Exactly. Exactly. That's quite right. That's a good summary. You can see how it all worked. I mean, they, there was such a blatant, deliberate 
attempt to sink that ship. And it, it was only the amazing tenacity of the sailors that managed to keep it afloat, because if it had sunk, that would have been it. So it was just the, their efforts that kept it afloat that prevented World War III. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary situation that the, the President of the United States recalled the F-16s, which were going to rescue the ship. They were going to protect the ship. And they were recalled from the... From, they'd taken off, it's been scrambled, and they were about to defend the ship, and they were recalled to the, the aircraft carrier, told not to go there, which was, a, a, you can imagine the disappointment to the crew when they heard that, and they were fighting for their lives. There was a deliberate attempt to sink it, and the hush that was put over the whole thing afterwards, you know, and the, the threats that were given to anyone that spoke, made it even more profound that that's what happened. And, and there was a deliberate, that Cold War warrior mentality that existed in the Pentagon at that period was just off the scale, really off the scale. And they were the main instigators, I think, of that whole thing. I think they had to silence that shit because it was watching, the Israelis had promised not to occupy the government. I think that was one of the stipulations for the assistance that the Americans gave them, was that they weren't to occupy the Golan. They started to occupy the Golan, watched by the ship. And I think as soon as they realized there was a spy ship watching them, they went for it. And then they involved the rest of the CIA, the Cold War warriors in the Pentagon, and said, right, this is the opportunity. Let's go for it. And we can sink it, and then we can blame the Russians, because there was a Russian fleet in the Mediterranean at the same time as well. So I think there was a big game plan going on here. And had the boat sunk, I think that would have been it. I think we would have, a very different picture would have, would have arisen. Why do, you, why, Russian... how do you, why do you think so few people know uh, of this episode? Uh, you know, we're talking about the 1960s, not the 1860s. We're talking about no. uh, an attack on a warship of the United States uh, of America. Why is this not a much bigger story than it is? It's the control of the media again. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it goes right all the way back to that sort of period when they realise they've got to start clamping down on the media and controlling the media. And the confirmation came because of the bulls up in Vietnam and they put that down to the loss of Vietnam was the press. And that's when the press was completely castrated in every way. And that's that we're experiencing the result now, I think. But um, at that particular period in time, there was the, the ascendancy, it was the height of the Cold War of the late 60s. And you had this ridiculous self-perpetuating arms race, which was completely out of control and was run by manic Cold War warriors, particularly in the Pentagon. It's not, I mean, you obviously had a reaction from the, the Soviet side, but that was... A, a slightly different mentality. I don't think that was the aggressive mentality which was being perpetrated by the Pentagon, which in itself was being driven by the arms industry, which is going with where we still are, and why Kennedy was killed. And I think it was just a perpetuation of that. I, I was having a conversation earlier on with someone, and I was thinking about almost organized crime moved into the arms industry at the end of the Second World War and said, we've got to perpetuate this gravy train. How can we do it? And it sounds a bit of a grand plan, but it's it's an interesting theory when you look at the characters who are involved. Yes, and, indeed, um, indeed, uh, author and journalist Chris Plumley, thank you for joining us.
uh, on the subject of the USS Liberty. Uh, you can still vote on my poll. 798 of you have. And Jeremy Corbyn's on 29. Julian Assange on 59. And Barack Obama on 12. Merrick says, can we expect any leadership from our head of state during the riots and violence? Well, she's 93 years old. The Queen was wheeled out to read some sentimental we'll meet again guff about the COVID situation, but it's radio silence on the social unrest. Isn't it time for us to elect our own head of state from whom we can expect some inspiration? And Shukla says, statues of those I admire already uh, up for Mahatma Gandhi in London. By the way, they're trying to pull down the Mahatma Gandhi uh, statue in Leicester. Uh, Brian Clough in Nottingham and John Lennon in Liverpool. We now need John Kennedy. And on Facebook, Paul says, I'm watching from Madeira. Good evening. No deaths here as we lock down early. And Pete says, so what is the consensus on corona? Is it a hoax or just a stronger strain of flu? Neither, my dear friend. You've obviously not been listening. Let's hear from Brent in Southampton. Go ahead, Brent. Yeah, hello, George. It's Hi. nice to be on the show again. Um, Thanks, I just want to talk about the, I suppose it's the issue of the uh, stabbings, I think, in Reading. It really relates to something I've been quite interested in over the years. It's um, how the British state, for quite a long time, has always quite often been in alliance with... Islamic extremism. Sure, since, it goes back since at to least the, the 1970s. 50s. Well, the 50s, and also uh, in the 50s, even after Brent. the First World War. No, uh, in the 1950s, we were openly uh, allied with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt uh, against uh, President Nasser, uh, and uh, there's a lot of chapter and verse on that. Go ahead, Brent. Yeah, I mean, I can give you examples. Um, the first example probably dates back to. Um, even during the Second World War, you could argue they supported the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Now, that In the First May World War, yeah. That's a bad thing. Um, also, just after the, the uh, First World War, you had wars of intervention against the uh, Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union. They actually supported someone called Enver Pasha. He was a, previously a confederate of Kemal Ataturk, but he disagreed with him on, on key issues. And he had something known as the army, he was the leader of something known as the Army of Islam, which fought against the Bolsheviks in the Caucasus. And, you know, fast-forwarding to a few years, you had what you just mentioned, but also in Afghanistan. Um, this is going into my lifetime now. In 1986, Islamist terrorists uh, bombed Kabul airport. They killed... Uh, a number of uh, school children on their way to a youth festival in Moscow. Margaret Thatcher actually condoned it, actually supported it. It was also Margaret Thatcher's government who allowed people such as Abu Hamza into this country. I believe he was a, a nightclub bouncer, such a you know a, you know, rare in-demand job. But I mean, th I just feel that the media has covered up this link. And I've always been one of those people, like yourself, who's wanted to expose that link to the state, the British state, and Islamic terrorism.
Brilliant, Brent. I couldn't put it better. I won't try to. Uh, because of the hour, uh, I'll press on. But a brilliant call. Call of the night, actually. Hamza is in London, is Libyan, and goes to university in Reading. Hamza, welcome to the show. Hello, show. Hello, hello, George. How are you? I hope you're well. By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank I'm you. I'm a fan of you because you always stand with the truth, especially in the Libyan issue. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, sir. I would like to apologize for all of, to all of the British people about what this man has done. And this doesn't, doesn't represent any, uh, he doesn't represent the Libyans at all. He just represents himself. And what he did is so awful. And one more thing to add, George, is that he was, unfortunately, I just saw a picture that he was recruited during 2011, and he's a member of militias. Yeah, militias in Tripoli there. So, again, I would like to sorry about, I would like to say sorry about this, but at the same time, it's wrong to deal in the beginning with those people in 2011. It was wrong. Absolutely correct, uh, Hamza. Uh, moreover, uh, two additional points. Uh, one is yes. that MI5 have admitted uh, that uh, they knew of this man. He was, quote-unquote, on their radar. And secondly, of course, uh, before he went to Reading, he lived in Manchester, uh, where the rest of the cell uh, of the... Uh, the anti-government, uh, the anti-government, yeah, anti the, anti the, sure, the opposition which the, was formed there. Yeah, the, the, the Islamic fighting group, the clue being in the name, uh, were deliberately uh, cosseted by the British government and its security agencies uh, in Manchester. Uh, they were encouraged to gather there in Manchester. And in that cell, uh, metamorphosed uh, the mass murderers of the children in the Manchester arena. Uh, they curdled in that cell and out of it emerged these monsters. And now we find another Libyan who was living in Manchester, who is connected to the Islamist fanatics uh, back in Libya, and who was known to MI5. It, it's becoming a pattern, Hamza. True, sir. True, sir. True, sir. And I would, I would like to apologize for what this, those two people did because they're just representative of themselves. They don't represent the Libyans at all, sir. And even though, like, I hope now the, the British government opens an eye on, the, on some of the terrorist groups which are, like, located now in Libya, unfortunately, with, with extremist Islamist, uh, Islamist ideology there. And I hope, like, not to, I hope they, in their foreign policy, they deal with the right people and just try to not to, to worsen the issue in the future. Well, that's the best call of the night. Now, uh, Hamza, thank you very much for making it. Ian is in Hounslow. Uh, go ahead, Ian. Good evening, George. Good evening, sir. Um, I wanted to uh, talk about the problem of foreign, foreign criminals and us not being able to remove them from our shores. It's now, absurd, uh, isn't it? It's absurd, but there, there, is, there is a reason for it, and I picked it up by watching the Parliament channel with the special committee about prison overcrowding. Now, these people fight tooth and nail not to be deported using the Human Rights Act. They're 
countries of origin fight tooth and nail not to have them back because who wants a criminal back in their own country and have to pay for it? This is the problem. And our prison population, which is fit to burst in, 20%, it's approaching 20% of foreign nationals. And we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, uh, I, I would take the hardest possible line. Uh, I would say you are a Libyan asylum seeker. Uh, you have, and this is before this weekend, you have committed and been convicted of three criminal offences. Uh, one of them, you were sent to prison for a violent criminal offence, quite a serious assault, uh, actually, whilst working as a security guard, believe it or not. And I would say uh, you are going back to Libya because that's where you come from. Uh, we don't care if you now claim uh, that you converted to Christianity and will be in danger there. We don't care uh, if uh, you have a dog here and it would be, uh, it would be uh, uh, cruel to separate you from that dog. We don't care if you now declare uh, that you have uh, uh, a certain uh, personal uh, habits that would make you endangered there. We don't care about any of that. You had three strikes. You're out, and we are going to put you on an aeroplane, private aeroplane if necessary, and we're going to leave you at uh, Tripoli Airport. And that's what we should be doing with all of these foreign criminals. We have enough British criminals. Why should we put up with foreign criminals on top of that? The problem is, George, all these liberals, all these people with virtue signals saying, we can't be nasty to these people. We have to think what they're going to face when they go back. But they're not the victims of crime. Exactly. They can hide from it. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, there is an alternative. I don't favour it. Uh, but uh, if you can't go back to Libya, you'll have to be hanged uh, for a multiple murder. Well, George, I, I don't see an end to it, but you've highlighted a very, very serious problem. That's all I've got to say. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Uh, Shred is in Illinois. Go ahead, Shred. Hey, George. Uh, thanks for having me on your show today. Welcome. You know, the thing I want to talk about here is this. You know, we talk about all these groups that are controlled by so-and-so, and we talk about all these politicians controlled by so-and-so in the media and Hollywood here in the United States. But who's the power players at the top? Who are the elite families at the top? Because we know that families like the Rothschilds have owned, like, Reuters and the AP since the 1800s, and they've controlled all the knowledge, all the information. But Rothschild like doesn't own AP. So... Let's talk about the people. Well, let's talk about it. Rothschild does not own AP. Reuters. Reuters. They don't own Reuters. Reuters. They don't own Reuters. Who does? I'm telling you, it isn't the Rothschilds. Well, if it's not them, you obviously know who it is. Who yeah, is it? Well, it was begun by the newspapers themselves. And then it was floated They're as... They're all controlled by somebody. Hold on. We hold know on. about... Mocker... Hey, wait a minute. No, 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 we no. You wait a minute. You, you, you wait a minute. Reuters was established 
uh, by, by uh, the international mass media companies, television companies, newspapers. It was controlled and owned by them until comparatively recently. And then it was privatized. It was sold on the stock market. Rothschild does not own Reuters. This is a calumny. And I suspect that it's an anti-Semitic calumny. Not least because you're about to speak about George Soros next. And we don't allow anti-Semites on this show, on this network. So be gone. Be gone. Uh, now, I don't have any more uh, comments, Chris. Do get me some. Uh, let's talk to the legend, Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. I needed to speak to you because, actually, I wanted to say something nice because it's Father's Day, but I can't. Yes. No, I can't. The thing is, I, what I just wanted to say was, I watched this um, television program the other night, and it was David Olisungo's The Secret Windrush Files. Oh, yes. And it, it went back 70 years, and I found it very embarrassing because all our governments were just shown to be so overt or covertly racist right up to the present day. And, um, you know, I was, well, it doesn't I was even, a bit ashamed. Yeah, yeah. Ashamed. No, uh, you're right to uh, feel that way. I feel that way too. Uh, mm. But, Norma, uh, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, it's a little-known fact uh, that a British minister by the name of Enoch Powell... Oh, uh. Enoch Powell... Uh, actually toured uh, the Caribbean, mm. appealing to workers in the Caribbean to come to England it to work that. in mm. our NHS, to mm. work on our buses, uh, to fill a gap in the labour market. Now, not only was it a British politician that did that, it was Enoch Powell who did it, and, yep. and not even 10 years before, he then made his infamous uh, yep. statement uh, about, uh, uh, about black people in Britain. But it was all, it was, you know, it went right back to all the, whether they were Labour or Tory, and they did show us, actually, him doing that, um, Enoch Powell. But uh, anyway, George, the other thing was I just wanted to say, I used to go to Saturday morning pictures when I was a teenager. So did I. We yeah. come along on a Saturday morning. There was a man everybody play... with a smile. smile. Exactly. There was, yeah. there was a man playing an organ at the front yeah. of the oh. cinema. Oh, well, we didn't. We just have a record on ours. I <laughs> know. Uh, we had an organist <laughs> in the Gaumont. In the Gaumont oh. in uh, Dundee, or Gaumont, as we called it. Oh, we had the organ. But... I just like you, I don't always want to agree with you, but we saw Cowboy Indian films, we saw one film and another little cartoon, then a main one. And I always wanted the Red Indians to win, but the Cowboys always did. Yes, it wasn't until Soldier Blue in the 1970s and uh, the Dustin Hoffman movie Little Big Man uh, that we saw depicted uh, on, the, uh, on the silver screen. Uh, who the real goodies yes. and who the real baddies were. Ah. Well, I didn't see that, but... Um, <coughs> well, you're too young. You're too young, oh! but uh, Buffy <laughs> San Marie 
uh, she sang the Soldier Blue uh, um, a signature tune, very beautiful, uh, actually. Uh, but Soldier Blue was the first movie that showed the truth, uh, that the white settlers uh, were the savages, and the people yeah. we'd been brought up to believe as savages uh, were the victims of their savagery. Well, it came out, didn't it? And um, I want to put um, Tony Byrne for a statue in Bristol because he was in Bristol for a very long time and he was such a good bloke. Thank you, uh, Norma. I appreciate that very much. In fact, uh, I can tell you that the, uh, the main owners uh, of Reuters are Thompson, uh, Thompson Press, not Rothschild. These kind of uh, racist calumnies uh, we will not put up with here uh, on the mother of all talk shows. I have never once found a single caller to any of my shows who has mentioned Rothschild to have been telling the truth uh, about Rothschild. I hear it all the time. Rothschild owns the media, doesn't own any media. Rothschild owns the banks, uh, owns a small private bank, the big banks, are owned by pension funds and private shareholders uh, in their millions, not by uh, a Jewish uh, family long established in the banking and finance issues. It's right to hate the mainstream media. It's right to hate uh, the uh, role that banking and finance plays in a modern capitalist economy. It is entirely false, wrong, damaging, and dangerous uh, to somehow substitute Jewish people, either generically or in the name of a family, uh, for the crimes of the mass media and of the uh, banks. Uh, I, I really cannot have it. Uh, now, uh, in the moments uh, left to me, I want to say uh, a few things. First of all, uh, don't forget my speech on Tuesday night on Brexit, the battle for Britain, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I hope you will anyway. It's exactly the uh, anniversary uh, of the great victory for Brexit in the uh, European Union referendum. Secondly, uh, I have uh, uh, started uh, signing again uh, copies of my debut novel, Queensway. Uh, I said I'd signed the first 1,000, uh, but such is the demand, I've decided to sign some more. You can get it on Kindle, you can get it on Amazon, or you can get it directly from me and it will be signed and dedicated. And you can do that at uh, info at georgegalloway.com. And I want to ask Facebook, why they have taken down uh, my RT documentary film uh, called The Patriot Game, uh, which charts uh, the history of fascism in Britain. There is absolutely nothing in that film, it's a half-hour documentary, that would warrant Facebook taking it down uh, from my page. It had more than 120,000 views in four days uh, since we re-floated it, re-put it up, re-posted it uh, on Facebook. I'm appealing to Facebook uh, to reverse this ban. If they don't, I will take legal action 
against them uh, for this arbitrary act of censorship against me and against a film that I am proud of. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time. <laughs>